I wouldn't have said I was a heavy metal fan, but man, that was an experience. And around me, everyone is just, I'm, I feel that I'm in the belly of the beast in a way. There's a sort of sense of everyone just totally transfixed by the sound and absorbed in the sound and the electricity of the sound and the power of it. Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Well, kia ora koutou, welcome to Circuit Cast, and today I'm in Tamaki Makaido, Auckland, here at the Tuuru Gallery in Titarangi, looking out over the Manukau Harbour. I'm here with Auckland-based artist Kushla Donaldson. Kia ora to you, Kushla. Kia ora, Mark. We're here in your installation, Fairy Falls. You talk about it in the exhibition blurb as negotiating the world of finance that we all inhabit. Within that, it touches on environmentalism, it touches on indigenous self-determination, it touches on aesthetics, it touches on bogan culture and in particular the great Narawahia Music Festival of 1973 and and you're doing that with a whole range of different components here in in the gallery. Why call the exhibition Fairy Falls? I think it's a a place out here in Karikari, but what was the connection to the title? Well the Fairy Falls, yeah, I mean it's a very kind of romantic turn, it's been termed at the Fairy Falls since colonial times. I've tried to find out the local airway name for this falls, but it's actually knowledge that is precious, so it's not for public knowledge. So we call it the Fairy Falls in lieu of knowing its real name that is protected. And, you know, that's a a beautiful romantic idea in itself. You know, the signifier of the space has protected itself. Kushla, we're standing in front of a pair of jeans, a pair of Levi's. What sort of Levi's are they? They're not 501s, are they? No, I think they were, <laughs> I'm not sure, they weren't flared because I had to wear them for work. And they've been well ironed, paint splattered but well ironed, stretched across a canvas. Certainly speak to a certain part of working class culture. So these are the jeans I actually wore when I was working as an artist assistant for Anish Kapoor in London in 2010. This is actually <laughs> quite an old work. I made this work and uh, then I came across a reading of Spivak because she actually visited Anisha's studio and in an essay around um, globalisation talks about the workers who were working in Anisha's studio as this kind of white army because we used to have to wear these white chemical protectant suits and the quote she used about us there was who dreams beyond the dream worker the enforcer of the metapsychological and the tinker of ego, just. <laughs> I thought it was interesting as a, uh, you know, it's a leftist and, and you know, um, a Marxist. And um, I felt... So do you take issue with the way that the labourer is treated and within the artistic kind of production line, as, as, it, as it were? Well, there's a lie that goes on. There's a lie. And the lie goes something like artists, are, you know, to make proper art must make the work themselves and be hands-on. So that is, you know, the kind of like romantic idea of the hand of the artist, you know, that's a fallacy, right? And there's another lie that goes that if you're a proper artist, you don't need to work for other people. Mm. Um, I think that one's been pretty much smashed. I mean, you've got artists, you know, working as designers or things. They usually keep their second jobs pretty quiet. 
And the other one goes that, you know, in, in intellectual concerns that these workers won't be engaged in your academic conversation, they are to be commented upon. Mm. You know, the, the tinker of egos and the who dreams, is it, these white, uh, is it this white army? Well, she could have asked me. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's really important to, when you're working in solidarity, to not make assumptions about who a panel beater is out west. Mm. or what it means to embody a particular op- occupation or why a person's wearing the overalls. This work over here is called The Bride and Her Complex Strategies. And there's a car behind the bride doing a burnout? It's actually a, um, it's become a bit of a standard uh, bogan uh, wedding um, a cliche photograph. Yes, the, 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 the bride, the bride in the wedding dress with the smoke of the burnout. Yeah, and, and the, the grooms in the driver's seat. The grooms in the driver's seat. Yeah, there's an embodiment of the traditional romantic, but there's a resistance as well, and it, it kind of speaks to a world that's complex, right? It's got this beautiful bride in white, and and yet you know here's all these fumes and exhaust and emissions that are a big problem in our world. Well, let's talk about some of those ideas and we can talk about some of the work. There's a really interesting statement about romanticism, that in terms of the left in politics coming together and the left incorporating everything from the sort of so-called greenie movement to to Māori self-determination to working class people and their aspirations, the only way that we can bring all these forces together is romanticism. I wonder what you mean by romanticism and, and what the role of art is in that. Romanticism is such a problematic term and I guess that's why uh, you know, I'm wanting to discuss it. I mean I've been researching around romanticism well, since the early 2000s really where I was doing my masters at, at Goldsmiths and, and looked at romantic uh, historical aesthetics and affect. Affect is a term that people use now almost in a place of romanticism so it's like <laughs> the thing that is beyond the signifier or the thing that affects the body or embodiment is an interesting way to posit it but romanticism itself often has been left aside funnily enough from the left in terms of uh, sociological discussion or thought because there was the problem with there is a problem with fascism and Heidegger and those kind of mm. people who were involved in a kind of romantic turn that turned very, very bad. So there's been a move away from it, but to reinvigorate it on the left, I think we do have to reconsider it as a tactic because human beings being emotional creatures and also romanticism existing in our communication with nature on all levels, it's really important to bring it together and find those links um, mm. and how they're operating. It's unifying some very base things, that we all get a charge out of our connection with nature or we get a charge mm. with the, the pulse of music or these things that are beyond the rational sometimes. I mean, we all get a kick out of a kind of a spirit, be it the spirit in, in by, by Black Sabbath or from a wyata, right? Exactly, a wyata, yeah.
For about a year, I've been wanting to do um, research this film about the Great Narawahia Music Festival where Black Sabbath played. And 1973. 1973. And um, I myself feel a deep connection to the band Black Sabbath in the fact that they were very working class. Um, they came from Birmingham and their sound and their music was drawn from the machinery and the factories that were around them in Birmingham and they right. had this angry mechanical noise and it was the advent of heavy metal and heavy metal has often become you know an embodiment of a kind of working class attitude of rebellion in a sense mm. working against the commercial against what you're told to like and there's an anti-aesthetic in heavy metal that um, I've always enjoyed since I was young. So you're trying to counter that in this installation? I'm trying to embody it. Okay okay and that kind of in a sense means there's, there's a lot of things in this installation that a num- people might be attracted to from all sorts of different walks of life obviously the the paint splattered jeans or you've got a, a, a large portrait of a, of a, a Māori man in a suit behind Cliff it. Curtis. It's Cliff Curtis, an aspirational figure, uh, one would say, one would say. Aspirational in what way? Oh, I think he would probably be aspirational as, as, as a Māori who has, in a sense, embodied his identity but carried on in the world. And then he's gone into Hollywood and inhabited all these different races and been typecast, but he's sort of come out the other way and there's a sense that he still kind of holds on to his mana. Oh, totally. This why, why Cliff Curtis for you? Well, I was at um, the opening of the reprint of Desperate Remedies. And oh, I somehow I ended movie. up at that opening. And um, he was there and he... It was, you know, a fancy opening and I often feel uncomfortable in that context um, as many people who exist outside a very moneyed kind of world do. I saw Cliff and... My eyes met his, and I thought, oh, it's Cliff Curtis, amazing. And then I, I looked at his suit, and he was, having, he was wearing bare feet <laughs> in the Civic. And I thought, that is amazing. That is a moment of presence and his existence. The Civic being like a marae, like a special place to Auckland and us, and he is in bare feet upholding tradition, Māori ontology, Māori tradition. But inhabiting the world of finance at the same time. He wears the suit but he kind of stays around it. It happened at a cultural moment and he was um, present as Māori and I thought it was a great moment of resistance in a sense and also a power of aesthetic. So this also kind of leads for me to the subject of Black Sabbath and the famous performance at the Great Narawahi Music Festival of 1973 involving a burning cross on a hillside. Yeah. And, and behind an aluminium hinged screen here you've got a 30 minute film that I think you've made with cinematographer Adam Luxton yeah. about the Great Narawahi Film Festival. I really wanted to ask you what got you interested in, in, in this music festival? Well, um, I was at work um, one day and um, talking to a friend and I said to him, gosh, I've been re-listening, this was like maybe three years ago, so I've been re-listening to um, Black Sabbath recently. I honestly think they are the best band in the world. I don't know how they made those songs. And he said, oh, do you know they played at Narawahia? I was like, what? Yeah, they played in Narawahia, the great music festival 1973 and at that moment I just thought oh my god that's incredible that a band that changed the world and changed people's perceptions of music in 73 found themselves 
in Narawakia, in a paddock, in Waikato, <laughs> in a paddock, and yeah, with this burning cross that they they wanted to put up on the hillside, and I wanted to know what it was like to be there. I wanted to know about the experience. I don't think I saw it as a cross, just a fire, right? Because yeah. that's what it looked like from where we were. There's probably you probably needed to be higher up or something to see that it was an actual cross. And why was there a kind of hesitancy around that? that well, the religious connotations and, you know, it was only the pretty things had come in in 65 and now we're 73, what, eight years or something. Uh, changes were happening. Um, long hair, a different view of the world, smoking dope, uh, you know, things were starting to change. And the newspapers reflected shock and horror. People took their clothes off or were rolling around in the mud or something, but it was okay, actually. We did okay. What's fascinating about the film is that it's not a conventional music documentary at all. In fact, the main stars are, well, the interviewers, the, the farmers and what was left and the, the money they were owed and, and what it involved for them in terms of being involved in the financial world of the music industry and staging this on a farm. The, the security firm that was mainly staffed by Māori and Polynesians and mm. which had a different kaupapa from some of the other security firms that had come before them. Mm. Uh, and the experience of some very young girls, some young women, of ex what they experienced coming face to face with these meddlers. In researching this this festival, I was given cues to these moments, uh, like with Cliff's spare feet, you know, these moments that things moved past a kind of colonised white authoritarian model. They moved into a realm of, like, how we can be self-determining and creating secure and safe environments for large groups of people, you know, for, even for young girls but also have these wonderful cultural and artistic experiences. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a festival didn't have too much trouble, did it? I mean, they didn't, none. wasn't you, none? Um. I think, uh, no, the only, tr the only <laughs> trouble came with it when the, apparently when the uh, Hare Krishna started playing after Black Sabbath, uh, people didn't like the change in pace, so they started throwing bottles at them. <laughs> there is very little documentation, actually, in existence of it, and... I feel it was a really important sociological moment and the people involved you know, went on to do incredible things. Hugh Lynn, the head of the security firm who I interviewed in this, ended up being manager of the Herbs and yeah. you know, um, having a real involvement in um, taking Māori music and contemporary music into the mainstream. I mean, we forget how bad it was. You know, uh, there were some radio stations that even refused to play Herbs you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, because they were seen as... Murray Radicals. Yeah, well, anyway, saw the Poirier movie last year would have got a real cultural wake-up in terms of how it was yeah, back shocking, then. Yeah. Shocking, shocking. And we've, we're lucky that we've moved slowly forward, but, you know, I'm still... To be together and to... For our financial systems, it, they're not functioning, they're broken. The capitalist system's broken. We need to look at alternatives, and I think Māori epistemology it has that for us, and I do think that compulsory te reo in schools would, would go a long way in creating yeah. a, a more of an understanding um, of how we can 
treat things better. You even come down like the other day, like the Whanganui River, you know, getting legal entitlement as as a person, you know, that's a great romantic move. Yes. But then yes. you've got some weird white guy on Q&A, you know, saying, oh, it's lunacy, oh, that's a joke, you know, but I felt so removed because to me it makes perfect sense. It's a perfect, legitimate, romantic turn that has real legitimacy and, and meaning and reason behind it. Well, not everyone loves Black Sabbath as much as you do either, Kushla. When are we going <laughs> to see another live performance of this, this art Black Sabbath caper that you've, you've oh, got? Oh, we've, um, we've got one hopefully planned soon, um, whether that will happen or not. But um, we're, um, we've been talking to um, a great band uh, well, I, I want to get hold of up north, Alien Weaponry. They a contemporary young, very young band, and they they do metal, but they sing in Tarao. So. Awesome, yeah, awesome. That'd be great. Awesome. So I'd love to yeah. support them if they have us. Okay, we'll start bringing these people together collectively. It's a great thing. Thanks for joining us here on Circuit Cast. We're here at Te Uru. Kia ora to you, Kishla. Kia ora, thank you. Uh, brought to you with the help of Creative New Zealand. Thanks for joining us, and you can find out more at circuit.org.nz. Circuit Cast is brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand, with music by Heat Pump. Follow Circuit Cast on iTunes. For more information, see circuit.org.nz.